Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy chats with Richie Siegel and Marissa Torelli-Padevska. The two are co-founders of The Inevitable Foundation, a new nonprofit dedicated to funding and mentoring professional disabled screenwriters. The ultimate goal of The Inevitable Foundation is to create a world where people with disabilities are valued both on and off screen. Learn more about Richie and Marissa, why they started The Inevitable Foundation, their fellowship program, and much more through this conversation with Judy. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, we're going to be speaking with two people who have created a new organization called the Inevitable Foundation. We'll be learning about them and the work that they're doing and the impact that this work is having in the field of media, particularly in the area of screenwriting. Uh, Richie Siegel and Marissa Torelli Pedevska. Did I say that right? So close, Pedevska, Pedevska. but I've heard so many versions. <laughs> okay. Well, again, nice to have you here. Judy, thank you again for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, Judy. So tell us a little bit about what is the Inevitable Foundation and what are your roles within the organization? Richie, you want to go first? Sure. My name is Richie. I'm one of the co-founders of Inevitable with Marissa. We started uh, January 1st of this year, so we're about 11 and a half months old at this point. And we started the organization to help close the disability representation gap in film and television. We observed through a bunch of research that you know disabled people make up about 20% of the population, uh, but only 2% of characters on screen and only 0.7% of writers off screen. And we felt that writers presented a really unique opportunity to help solve this problem. Um, so we're focused on funding and mentoring mid-career disabled screenwriters and using them kind of as a bully pulpit to change the state of disability representation in film and television. Marissa? I'm Marissa, co-founder of Inevitable with Richie. I think, you know, because I'm a writer with a specific focus on screenwriting, it was a very natural fit early on to focus on writing because that was something that I care so much about and I know the power of. And like Richie said, we fund and mentor disabled mid-level screenwriters because it all starts with a story. How did the two of you meet? We're both smiling because <laughs> we love the story. I'll, I'll go first because I love the story. We met because for the past eight years, I've been working with an organization up in Rhinebeck, New York that runs a residential summer camp for teens and adults with developmental disabilities. And it's very much my second home. I've spent a lot of my life there. And Richie's sister is one of my best friends um, who I met at the camp that I work at and that she goes to. How long have you known each other? Only three years. Ah. Um, we only know each other three years, but Richie's sister and I knew each other for, for the past eight years. So Richie, do you have something to add to this, how you met each other? And what brought you together to want to begin to work on creating uh, the Inevitable Foundation? Yeah, I mean, you know, Marissa and I met three years ago through, you know, Ramapo and my sister, as she mentioned, and I was living in New York City before COVID and moved back out to live with my parents and my sister. And so I've, I've been living with our whole family as we built this foundation. And Marissa was with us for a long period of time as well. So there, there's been just a communal piece to this that I think has been very important to the inception of it as well. You know, given that we, we had kind of this shared dialogue or understanding, I think at the time, 
and Marissa will obviously tell more about her story, but I think she was really coming at this from an ally's perspective. I was and continue to come at this from an ally perspective. And we just had some conversations over kind of a period of, I guess, those first two years, I think had kind of established this really shared understanding. And I spent the last seven years working in the consumer goods space, running a consulting firm. And I think hit this point where I wanted to do something more mission-driven. I, You can help people sell stuff for a long enough period of time and it gets very boring after a while. And so, you know, Marissa was kind of on her path as a writer. I was looking for something new to do. And we just started doing a lot of research into all of this. And I think the more we dug into it, the more the gap became clear and the amount of work that there was to do. But also we had kind of this thesis that was not really revolutionary, which is in an industry built on storytelling, could you solve this disability representation problem by focusing on storytellers? And no one had really dedicated an organization to that. And I think that the more we looked at it, we said, if you're going to solve this, this is the way we think we can have a really transformative impact. And January 1st, we said, let's go do this. So it definitely was kind of a genesis, but I think it moved pretty quickly after we kind of honed in on the idea. I Richie, outside of your sister, uh, do you have personal connections to disability? I don't identify as disabled myself. I would say this, my sister is definitely the most immediate. She has epilepsy and other developmental disabilities and has relatively high support needs. Um, so, you know, grew up around a very specific, I think, embodiment and perspective of disability. I think Marissa, from her experience at Ramapo also, is a very specific side of it. And Marissa, for you, do you have any personal connections to disability? Definitely. I feel like my journey with disability and my relationship to it has been kind of this winding interesting long journey because like Richie said I very much you know started off as a as an ally and when I was a teenager I started working um, at Ramapo and living there and my whole life I've had chronic illnesses and my whole life I've had invisible physical disabilities but I didn't really know anyone like me and I didn't really have anything to like relate to or really understand that that could be disability. I just kind of thought like, oh, that's just me. Like I just, you know, move differently or like have different accommodations that I might need. And so as I got older, and especially as we started doing this work, I think my relationship to my my own disability completely changed and just finding community and finding people that I could like so deeply relate to and really understanding that like it can be invisible. It can be dynamic as in, you know, it changes day to day and your, your accommodations may change day to day, to day but um, still very much an experience of disability. So yeah, that's kind of a 30,000 feet view of my, my experience. So now do you identify as a disabled person? I do. I do. And it, it has given me so much more like language to talk about myself and my experience. I feel like for so long, like I said, I just said, oh, like, that's just the way I am. Right. And I didn't really have language. Sometimes I use the word chronically ill, but you know, even that didn't really fully kind of give an overview of, of my experience. And so, so yeah, I, I have a disability and, and that's cool. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about what gap the inevitable foundation is filling. Why is it important to start with screenwriting rather than casting or other areas of production? And I also need to say that there are many other organizations that have for many years been working in the industry, addressing issues like casting and other areas who I think have been doing really good work. So I, I know you know many of these groups. What made you believe that screenwriting was something that you wanted to elevate? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it's also important for us to acknowledge that like, we're definitely not the first to this problem, Judy, as you mentioned, there have been people and organizations laying the groundwork for this for a really long time. And we're definitely building off of some of those, you know, accomplishments and, and all, a lot of that progress. I think when we looked at the gap, talking specifically about the real world implications of this, you know, there's plenty of both quantitative research and it's just qualitative feeling around like the importance of representation of media and people seeing themselves and seeing other people, whether it can lead to destigmatization, whether it can cause harm. We know the media impacts us in various ways, whether it's film, entertainment, journalism, et cetera. And so I think as we started to look around this problem, you know, we saw basically this 28 times gap between 20% of the population here in the US is or identifies as disabled and 0.7% of writers. And I think what we kept looking at was there is definitely an importance to solving this work from a casting or an advocacy perspective, but there is this prime opportunity when the story is getting created to actually have this very tangible, efficient, cheap impact. And the more we kept looking at this, the more we just kept saying, like, what if you really could one focus on writers, whether that's just empowering a disabled writer to write about whatever they want, or it actually gets down to a disabled writer reading a character with a disability or or a storyline. And, and we don't really have a preference. We just want disabled people thriving in the industry, whatever they write about is totally up to them, or to the point where a lot of talent development programs focus on you know what are known as emerging or kind of entry-level writers. And there's a huge focus across the disability space, people of color, LGBTQ, any sort of underrepresented group right now, like getting more people into the industry. What we kept looking at though was even in the 0.7% of disabled writers who are working or in the Writers Guild today, there's still 150 people in there. And what we started to say was, what if our path was not about getting more people in, but getting the people in higher up and helping them really build thriving careers? Because when we look at who is at the top of the industry, there are very few disabled people in power in Hollywood. And so our work at the end of the day is about changing the power dynamics and putting more of those people in power. And we felt that there was already, at least for the foreseeable future, a strong enough talent pool that had already cleared some real barriers, such as getting you know staffed or working on a show or a movie, getting an agent or a manager, getting into the Writers Guild. These in and of themselves are huge accomplishments, that there was a pool of people that were kind of at this mid-level that we wanted to help get to the top. And so our mission is very focused and, and, and we're pretty laser focused on this, but we're, I think, really ambitious about what we can do with this approach and also what it allows us to just say no to so we can stay focused on what we think is, is working and will continue to work. Yeah. I mean, if you want to tell a nuanced story and, and tell the story of a nuanced character, you can't just like smack on a disability and, you know, like that has to be written into the character. It doesn't have to be about disability and and that doesn't have to be, you know, all that you're talking about with the character, you know, it doesn't even have to be mentioned, but like, it still informs a character's experience. And so if you're leaving it all up to casting, you're not really getting into the genesis of the story and this character's story. And so we found that like, it is super important to figure out where is the story starting? Who are writing these characters? You know, what is their relationship to it? And that's why casting alone isn't going to fill this gap. Part of what I think Mercy is also getting at is there are a lot of technical reasons why casting in their defense is a really hard place to solve these problems because when you're at the casting stage, you're 10 to 12 weeks generally away from a movie getting shot. The story is locked. There are a lot of incentives. The train is moving very quickly that it's pretty hard to kind of pull a U-turn or start to make change there. And a lot of people are just kind of heads down trying to get it into production and so forth. So there's limited options there. Have you modeled uh, your organization on any other organizations? It's a good question. I think within the entertainment space, the one that I think about a lot is CAPE, which is 
the Coalition of Asian American and Pacific Islanders in Entertainment. And what they've done, I think, which is really smart is that they started, I believe, on the writer side. So in, on the supply side of like, we need to get more AAPI writers working in the industry. But what they then did is that actually, it's not just about supply, it's also about demand. And so they run a program that trains executives, AAPI executives who work at the studios and the production companies and have the power to green light and say yes to a show to really increase the ranks of people on that side. So they have both sides going with the thought that they'll work together to really change the state of it. We're early, so we're really only focused on the supply at this point. But the hope over time in year two or three is we actually could do somewhat of similar to what they're doing and get more disabled people in power working at the studios and the streaming services. Because again, there are some people that have broken through on the writer, showrunner, producer side. There are very, very few, if any, at least that are openly disclose their own disabilities on the studio, the streamer production side. And we need both working at the same time. So I think CAPE is a great example. They do phenomenal work. And I think similar to us are a very small team that punches above their weight, which is super impressive. Who um, are some of the supporters of your work? So we've been really lucky and, and humbled both on the foundation side to have places like Ford Foundation and AT&T Foundation, the Conrad Hilton Foundation behind us uh, in our first year on the studio and kind of entertainment side. Um, we have Warner Media, AMC Networks, uh, Participant, and a few others that will be announced soon that also have come on board with dollars as well as other access to their teams. And, you know, it's an interesting balance of like, we're trying to change an industry, but we also are in many ways working within the existing system and not necessarily trying to blow up the system, but change how the system works and values people and, you know, how, how equity works within that system. So, you know, we, we have to kind of look at this from all different angles, but I think we've been really humbled of the support so far from funders, as well as other entertainment partners and just other people in the industry that have connections to this work, either that they publicly disclosed or um, that we've been able to kind of just learn about in conversation. There are definitely people out there, but so much of this is about just increasing the visibility. Just to add to that, I want to emphasize like how incredible it has been to realize that this community is so wide and like so many people that we meet with, whether it's on like the funder side or the network side, like either have connections to disability as themselves being disabled or, you know, a sibling or a friend or, or just seeing how big the community is of people that really care about changing the industry and making a difference and like connecting the dots, I think. And a lot of these people don't necessarily have that community and don't know where to start. And so it's exciting to see people realize like, oh, I can start here and like, I can actually be a part of this and make, make a difference. So partly what you're saying is there are people in these various entities, foundations, entertainment, et cetera, who um, have knowledge about disability, but needed something more to begin to engage in the area of disability in their area of work. I think a lot of what Marissa is talking about is, you know, the executive that has the sibling or the showrunner that has the son. And obviously that is very different than being disabled and identifying and being in part of the community. But I think there's also a practicality of like, if we can get someone like that to get behind our work, whether that's being a mentor, helping fund the work, helping make connections, like let's take that opportunity to make good on it. Why do you think they weren't noticing this before? I think people are just a lot of times wrapped up in their lives. And, and I think sometimes the dots just don't connect. I think someone who maybe is like an executive at a studio who might have like a disabled kid, maybe they look at that as two different parts of their life and their work is their work and their home is their home and they haven't necessarily overlapped before. And I think, you know, we've been really happy that like we can talk to someone for 20 minutes and if we can help them connect the dots on it, you know, and then this becomes a priority, like that's great. And it's not that we're like the saviors here 
or doing this kind of godsend type work. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, so much of this, I, I, I think is not, it's not intentional. It's a lot of just, oh, I haven't thought about it that way. Or like, oh, wow, I never connected those dots. I mean, my presumption is that the Inevitable Foundation and other organizations and the disability community as a whole has finally been getting the attention of some people to recognize there's more that they should be doing. And if in part you're able to help them, you know, I think Richie, you're an example, you have a sister who has a disability. So you can be talking about that relationship to why you think the absence of disability is important. And likewise, Marissa, you were pretty much saying the same thing. Having invisible disabilities, you didn't see yourself as having a disability. So I think the discussions that you're having and others are having, I think is hopefully bringing some people forward who have had the capability of bringing things to advance more, but for whatever reason, weren't doing it. Who are some of the other organizations you're working with that are disability organizations in the area of entertainment? And Merce and I are really practical, realistic people. And we said, look, we're starting this. We're about a year old at this point, but like there are amazing networks of talent that have already been out there and people are already cultivating and we don't need to rebuild them. Let's just partner with them. And that's both in the disability space and outside of it. So in July, we announced our pipeline program, which is really a referral program where we have about eight pipeline partners right now, who, if you are a writer that has gone through some of our partners programs, they can refer you into us. And we'll kind of note that as a priority application in so within the disability space, uh, the Disability Film Challenge, I think Novicki runs as a pipeline partner of ours, and he's been incredibly supportive. And Shana, for example, who we just named as our fall fellow was someone who's been involved in the Film Challenge. And it was really cool to see like how we can multiply the impact of someone like Nick and his team in the Easter Seals. And then, you know, outside of this, we have a great relationship with the Writers Guild Foundation, who runs a number of different programs that both uh, work with disabled and, and non-disabled writers. They have a veterans writing project as well. We've had a number of veterans come over and apply through that program, all the way to someone like Pillars Fund, which is working to increase the prevalence of, of Muslims in entertainment and have been doing some amazing work as well. So again, that intersectional approach has really been important. And like we are realists at the end of the day about if there's an opportunity to partner, we're going to 100% do that. If we can move on right now to talk a little bit about the fellowship program itself, why did you decide you wanted to do a fellowship program? I think we kind of looked at okay, if we've gotten to the place where we say we want to focus on writers and we're focused on mid-career writers to kind of solve this problem, I think it quickly went to like, what do they actually need to succeed and what does that look like? And I think the first thing was money and the, you know, the fellowship is a $25,000 grant along with a lot of mentorship workshops connections. So it takes place over about six months. And we felt that like 25K was like a significant place to start. It's meant to cover about six months of living expenses that often would allow a, a fellow to kind of pursue screenwriting full time. I think like many screenwriters and you layer on disability as well, like some of the biggest benefits of this are just giving people the time and space to get rid of the other jobs they're working on or just be able to write because so much of this happens on weekends and late nights and early mornings. And, you know, the actual like time of the day to spend on this makes a huge difference. So the money was part one. I think the mentorship was also huge. Again, I, you know, Marissa can attest, I think from her time at USC that like a lot of schools and a lot of early programs really focus on the writing. It's like probably 90% writing, 10% business. But entertainment is very much a business. And so we try to flip that a little bit and spend like a good majority of the work we're doing on helping our fellows develop the skills and the knowledge and the expertise to really sell themselves and sell their work because we want to get stuff made and we want people to have jobs. 
jobs and, and soon become employers and actually be the creators that are hiring other disabled people. And then the third was really connections. And I think when we looked at, we always say that if you put a disabled writer and a non-disabled writer side by side, the chances are pretty high that that non-disabled writer has a network that's vastly superior to the, the disabled person's network. And that is not anyone's fault, but you know, the rooms where people are meeting, the, the invites to the the events, at least pre-COVID, et cetera, like often these rooms are just not accessible or these people are not welcome to them. So a huge focus of ours is really helping rapidly expand the connections that our fellows have to people in the industry. So as an example, there's someone called the development executive who is in charge of like developing and buying projects on behalf of a studio or production company. We've so far built up a network of over 50 different development executives who have all offered and agreed to meet with our fellows and read their work. And, you know, that will turn into jobs in the future. And so the relationship pieces. I'm um, really important. But I mean, to answer your question, I don't really know how else we could have solved it, which is kind of a weird answer. But it was almost, I, I think we just kind of were like, I think we have to give these things out. And I think that's a program and let's call it a fellowship. And now we have a fellowship. Right? So does that sound right? It sounds right. The only thing I'll, I'll add to that, that I think about is it costs a lot of money to be disabled, whether that's, you know, in my case, physical therapy or for someone else, sign language interpreters or personal assistants, like these things cost money. And so to have something like a 25K grant to be able to cover those things for a certain amount of time, it makes a difference. And I think a lot of non-disabled people don't realize how much money it can cost day to day. Who is qualified to apply? So the fellowship is open technically that anyone can apply. We don't charge application fees, which we're really intentional about because we don't want to tax this community for opportunity. So we will forever be free to apply. I would say that those that have the best shot of it probably have some prior experience working in the industry. They definitely are a very good writer. They might have an agent or a manager, but that's not necessarily required. But I think a lot of what it comes down to is also the ambition, which is, you know, we really focus on helping our fellows develop their own content. And we often say we want to help them go from being employees to employers. And so, you know, it's someone who has that ambition to really want to get to the top and overcome the many obstacles and barriers that whether you're disabled or not exist in this industry to really get there. It's kind of this mix of those skills. It doesn't really depend on age or education or anything like that. Like at the end of the day, it's about what's on the page and kind of where someone wants to go with it. So it's a bit of a holistic kind of description I can give you versus saying, you know, they're this old with this much experience. But I would stress kind of the ambition and like the world building piece of they, they want to build worlds and tell stories that aren't out there that will change how the world thinks about something. And that something could be disability, but also couldn't. Because when we started, we had this dual mission of funding and mentoring disabled screenwriters and increasing the amount of disabled characters on screen. And when we had that second part, people kept saying in the industry, hey, that's great, but like, I don't have any disability stories that I need your fellows for. So we dropped it and kind of got to this place of like, we're about centering disabled writers in the work, let them write about whatever they want. Sometimes that will be their identity, sometimes it won't. But our goal is to like build an army of disabled writers, producers, showrunners working at the highest levels of the industry. And we think we'll have a trickle up effect of representation on screen, but that isn't explicitly our mandate. So when is your next call? So applications are rolling. So you actually can apply today. We had just announced the fall fellows. Uh, we'll probably start reading again sometime in March for the spring fellowships, which will, will be announced sometime probably in the late spring. We encourage people to apply whenever they wish. We have people who didn't win who keep applying and we'd love to see that because again, there's no cost to keep applying. And we're starting to add some more support now for some finalists and runners up to help really elevate them as well as we kind of expand beyond just you know, focusing on two fellows every batch, but actually supporting other people about getting to that fellowship level as well. So each fellowship is about six months? 
Yeah. So it's about six months um, in terms of our, our programming side of it, workshops, writers, rooms, sprints, writer sprints, things like that. And the funding's meant to last about six months to fully cover the living expenses for that long. But we say that, you know, we want our fellowship to be just the very beginning of our relationship with our fellows, not the beginning and end. We want to build a really strong alumni network so that you're kind of a fellow forever. Like you're a fellow for that term, but you know, you don't just go away. Like Richie said, the goal is to build this kind of disabled army in Hollywood and create this really strong community. What would you say you've learned thus far, the progress that you're making and where do you see some of the barriers? I think in terms of the lessons, I I would share two of them. And I think one, you know, this is not the nicest industry in the world from the outside. It's not necessarily like the most supportive in many ways, but like we've been able to find some really good people that like want to actually make a difference. And I think that's been really humbling that those people are out there and we continue to find them. The other lesson I would share is that I think, you know, when we started, we had this idea of like really starting to scale up the numbers quickly. So, you know, it's four fellows this year, then it's eight next year, then it's 16 the following year. And I think probably one of the big lessons a person I've learned is just how hands-on it is important to be to really make each fellow successful and help them get the most out of it. And so I think we actually will probably give out less fellowships than we thought. And instead of giving more out, go deeper with the existing people that we have to make sure they really are building a thriving career, which is what our focus is. And to what Marissa was saying before, like that's a multi-year process to help someone build a career. We can't do that at six months. We think we can make a good dent, but it really goes longer than that. So I think that lesson has been really important. In terms of the barriers, I mean, the number one thing that comes to mind is just disability being left out of the diversity conversation. Usually if it is included, it's the last thing on the list. There was a studio, for example, that released a diversity report in the last month. It was 110 pages long. Disability was on one page and there was no data, right? So it's very emblematic of if you don't track this, if you don't care about it, if you don't measure it, you don't prioritize it, our work is harder to get done because this industry, which again, tends to be very reactive, not proactive, has a long list of things they got to fix and work on. And, And what we try to really say is, please don't think of disability and the work we're doing as just the thing at the bottom of your list. Let's think about how it can solve all the things on your list and this at the same time. And that guy, I think, goes back to this, the intersectional approach we're trying to really take with this work. But that's the hardest barrier I can think of. Are you having focused meetings with any companies like Warner Brothers and others to talk with them about not only what you're doing, but to meet with other people to learn about what uh, some of the issues are that people face? The number one thing we hear when we talk to you know studios or streamers or kind of corporate entertainment people is they go, we have so many blind spots when it comes to disability, which so perfectly sums up the state of the conversation, right? Which is using an ableist term to explain right. how much they need to work on disability. And so like that is where Hollywood is right now. Is It's some awareness, but not enough. And are they talking to you about what it is they need? You know, the industry from what we've learned is very, very focused on projects, right? And so we have found success where someone goes, I have this project coming up. I need someone for this. You have anyone? And we can go back. We've actually, uh, one of the things we've been working on this fall is building this concierge service where studios can come to us and say, hey, I'm looking for a writer for this. Who do you have? And we can send back writing samples and make some informed recommendations. That is where I think we find the success. I think without some project that's like a forcing function and giving it a sense of urgency, it becomes a lot of this theoretical conversation that doesn't really go anywhere. And we honestly try to just avoid those because it's not a good use of anyone's time. And so I think we try to really focus on like the tangible, 
what are you working on? What can we help with? What do you need? And when we do that, you start to, to change. But I think we've tried to really be careful to not position ourselves as be all end all experts on the disability community. And so if someone's looking, for example, for a speaker to come in and talk to the team about disability, you know, I would refer them to Andrea Levant or someone like that, who has like really built the business and the expertise to do that. We're pretty careful about how we think about that. We do bring our fellows in to share their experiences and center them in some of that work, but we don't see ourselves as like disability experts at the end of the day. We feel very laser focused on building this program and really helping mentor and work with these disabled writers. But Marissa, I'll let you add on. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that we're always trying to center our fellows and some of the best conversations and the best kind of meetings that we've had aren't like panels. They're not things where our fellows are talking at a group of people. It's really a conversation and really a dialogue. And usually that's in like a smaller group because that's, it's much easier to kind of have a dialogue in a smaller group. And also, you know, things that are off the record, because I think people are like scared to ask questions that they're thinking of thinking it's going to be like a stupid question or I don't know, but you know, people really start asking good questions when it's more off the record, I think, and more personal. And we did this really great event with PopShift recently where we had disability leaders and showrunners in the industry have these one-on-one -on -one meetings and kind of switch off in these 15-minute intervals. And it was like highly personal. It was one-on-one. -on -one, it was off the record. And I think some really great conversations came of that because it was so organic versus just a panel of someone talking at you in the audience. What made you decide to do that? We met Roman, who runs PopShift, uh, and, and he, he founded Pathos Labs, which is a nonprofit really focused on kind of driving empathy and narrative change around a number of different underrepresented groups and just trying to kind of, you know, move culture forward. And I think we were really interested in the format. I've been to a lot of events before that I think are this very like didactic kind of panel keynote -y kind of thing. And it's so easy to lose interest in them. And we were really intrigued with what they were doing about just conversations, no agenda, no preparation, just put three people or two people in a room and let the pressure of that moment, you know, encourage them to connect on something. And, you know, we heard some wonderful feedback from the event, but the best part is both the disabled writers that were there as well as the disability leaders, many of them are still talking to the people they met with. And so again, to be able to spark those connections in a very hands-off way is great. It's efficient, it's scalable, and um, we're looking forward to doing, you know, some more of them. So what are your fellows saying about the benefit of the program they're in? I think, you know, because we just are wrapping up our first time doing this, our first round. And one of the things that really stands out to me is the feeling of community that they feel that we've built and that we have built. We have these weekly writers rooms where we kind of go over the fellows work and and see where they're at. And we've really built this like family, it feels like. Um, and I think Richie would would agree with that. We've done some incredible workshops and I think the fact that they've all been so different, you know, we've done multiple even pitching workshops, which are the same topic, but all of them have been from a very different perspective and a very different way to approach pitching. And I think our fellows really appreciate that because maybe they've only learned one way to do something, whether it was in school or just their experience in the industry. And so I think it's been community, obviously, of course, the money, which has made a big difference for people and also just like figuring out different approaches that might work for them. We've seen our fellows definitely hear other approaches that they haven't tried and you see it click like, oh, that is a really great way to do this that I haven't thought of before as a writer. Just as an example, we had a workshop last week with a really well-known writer who talked about he writes backwards. 
right? Which none of us had ever heard before, but he writes the ending before he writes the beginning, right? And it's like even something like that from someone who's written very big movies, we kind of just like to expose our fellows to a lot of different perspectives and like let them kind of find their path. You know, I, we don't at all take credit for their success, but I think with each of them, like we hope that we can accomplish kind of one thing or help change their thinking on, you know, one thing or kind of help push one project in the right direction or something. And I, I think we've been really proud of that. But yeah, Marissa's point about the community, I think is really important, especially you know, most writers write alone, right? So to have the community, the sounding board can be really impactful. I know this is a difficult question and maybe too early to ask, but uh, where would you like to be over the next three to five years? I think as we head into 2022, which we're, you know, really close to, it's continuing to deepen the fellowship program. So we've learned an immense amount about the structure of the program and how we really put it on that we're going to roll out next year. So we're kind of going to launch like version two of the fellowship that we're really excited about. So how will it look different than what you have now? It may not be finalized, but what are some of your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, when we started this, we kind of were like, we're going to give some people some money and we're going to let them tell us what they need and we're going to just somehow do it. It was very much kind of letting our fellows really drive. And, and I think we learned an immense amount from that process. What we've really been working on is putting more structure in the program. So Marissa mentioned before this idea of what we call a writing sprint, which is a 12-week period where a fellow is working on a project and trying to get it from kind of A to Z or get it from you know draft one to draft two or an idea to draft one. And we are bringing more mentors in. We're bringing script consultants in to actually help from a very technical level. So we're just kind of adding all this different support and just different subsidies and other resources that just continue to strengthen the program. So it's been really exciting to see all the stuff like we didn't do the first time or wanted to do. And actually now we can really incorporate that. And then we have a few other kind of special projects into next year. I mentioned this concierge service, about helping kind of play matchmaker and, and placing writers in different projects. And we're also working on this communication access fund, which we believe will be the first kind of equity fund to provide uh, free interpreter and other communication access services to deaf and hard of hearing writers. Our experience of working with Kaylin Feeney, one of our spring fellows, was a kind of big inspiration for that. And just seeing firsthand how the cost of uh, interpreter and often the, the lack of interest of many employers or prospective employers or so forth to really provide accommodation. I think if you look three, five years out, I would go back to what we talked about with CAPE of like, we have this army of disabled writers that are getting towards the top of the industry. We're starting to build this pipeline of incredible disabled content and development executives who are really shaping and buying all, a lot of amazing content. And back to what Marissa said, there's just a community that we've really helped seed of people working at a really high level that are kind of reinforcing each other's impact and so forth. And then if you go 10 years in, maybe 15, we hope we don't exist anymore because we've made such a big dent in this problem that you, know, you don't need to anymore. So we have the intention to self-destruct. We'll see how fast that will happen. That's the goal, self-destruction. We're wrapping up right now. And Marissa, do you have any other final remarks outside of the ones that you just gave? <laughs> self-destruction. No, no. Yeah. Just to go back to what I said at the very beginning of the podcast, my own relationship to disability in the community has very much changed in the past year. And it was slowly changing before that. But I think this very much accelerated that process and my relationship to the community and to my own disability. You know, disability is so broad and a lot of people don't realize that. And that, that's been another amazing thing about doing this work is having people realize that and understand that, that disability is so many things. There's so many different experiences of it. And I think a lot of people who maybe don't know any disabled people think, oh, disability is just your wheelchair user. And like, that's the only experience that ex maybe exists or, you know, you're autistic or, but there, there's so many different ranges of even those experiences. And 
it's been, yeah, amazing to connect those dots for, for people and for myself and to find that community. And I love meeting with all of our fellows because we all have very different experiences. And I think we've learned a lot from, from each other. I'd like to thank you both and um, look forward to learning more about the work that you will be doing in the future and how your work is continuing to influence the field and bringing more voices of disabled people into writers' rooms to be able to write more authentic work that is inclusive of disability. So thank you both. Thanks so much for having us, Judy. It's an honor. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guests or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.